Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. Hello, this is Dr. Narjos Flores. I'm the Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program and a medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and also an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. In this episode, we're going to discuss EGFR, non-small cell lung cancer, and transformation to small cell lung cancer, a new finding since the introduction of targeted therapy and how experts treat this new subset of patients. I have with me to pioneers in the field. We have Dr. Sosha Petroska, an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, a clinical researcher and lung cancer medical oncologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Petroska has a particular interest in understanding and overcoming resistance to targeted therapies and lung cancer, particularly among patients with EGFR mutant, no small cell lung cancer. Welcome, Dr. Petrowska. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to discuss this important topic. Our second guest is Dr. Sigeki Umemura from the Department of Thoracic Oncology at the National Cancer Hospital East Chaiba, Japan. His interests include targeted therapy in lung cancer, including genomic profiling of small cell lung cancer, evaluation of tumor microenvironment, and association with response to therapy and resistant mechanisms for disease progression. Welcome, Dr. Umemura. Thank you very much for your kind instruction. I'm so honored to be here, and I'm so excited about the discussion regarding EGFR transformation to small cell lung cancer. Thank you to the two of you for your time and your willingness to talk about this very important subject. We are delighted to have you here today. Let's start with the basics. When we say EGFR lung cancer transformation to small cell lung cancer, what does that mean? And are we hematologists now? Sophia, you can let us uh, know about the basics of this phenomenon. This is a really interesting phenomenon, Narjust, and it's one that we've known about for quite a few years now. You know, that broadly, the, the term histologic transformation refers to a phenotypic switch in a cancer, which we've seen in lung cancer can occur in response to various therapies, in particular to targeted therapy. Today, we're going to focus specifically on small cell transformation, which describes a histologic switch from a cancer that usually at diagnosis is predominantly a non-small cell carcinoma. In the case of EGFR mutant cancers, these are most commonly adenocarcinomas at the time of diagnosis prior to the start of treatment, to a predominantly small cell carcinoma at the time of progression on a targeted therapy. So it's a transformation from an adenocarcinoma to a small cell carcinoma. Our pathologists tell us that these cells tend to have a kind of a classic small cell carcinoma-like appearance, similar to what we would see in a de novo small cell lung cancer in a non-EGFR mutated cancer with high nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio, high mitotic activity, 
usually with positive staining for neuroendocrine markers such as chromogranin and synaptophysin. Now, small cell transformation was first described as resistance mechanism to first-generation EGFR inhibitors such as erlotinib and gefitinib, and we now know that it also occurs in patients who experience disease progression on osimertinib and really all classes of EGFR inhibitors. Uh, one question that comes up is how frequent these are, and, and the truth is that the exact rates of histologic transformation across these different EGFR inhibitors aren't exactly well known, but we know that they may occur in as many as 5 to 10% of patients who progress on first-line osimertinib specifically. Um, we also know that this phenomenon can occur in other oncogene-driven cancers, including, for example, ALK and ROS1-positive cancers. There have been case reports of small cell transformation really in response to various targeted therapies in lung cancer. Thank you so much for explaining the basics. And and to be honest with you, I, I used to to joke around when I was a fellow. I was like, oh, I'm going to be a medical oncology oncologist because, you know, this whole hematology things transform. And here we are now talking about this in lung cancer. It's true. Uh, it, it, it's really a, an evolving field and, and something that's really important to be aware of because, you know, these cancers can be quite dynamic over treatment. That's so, that's so important to mention that cancer is dynamic. It continues to evolve and we shouldn't see it as black and white. As we continue the conversation, Sigeki, are some patients at higher risk for this transformation? Yeah. So first, I will mention about the genetic alterations. Small cell and cancer cases universally have biallelic loss of tumor protein P53, TP53, and retinoblastoma 1, RB1. Therefore, triple mutant TP53 RB1 and EGFR mutant tumors are considered as higher risk of smooth cell and cancer transformation. Those of function TP53 and RB1 aberrations were identified by immunochemistry in 83% of transformed cases versus in 3% of non transformed EGFR mutant uh, controls, showing uh, 43-fold greater relative risk of small cell and cancer transformation with inactivation of both key genes. However, in other cohort study from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, in the TP53 RB1 EGFR triple mutant adenocarcinoma patients, only 18% had small cell and cancer transformation during their disease course, and 82% did not have uh, transformation. Suggesting that TP53 and RB1 mutations are reported, but not sufficient for small cell and cancer transformation. Gene alterations other than TP53 and RB1 mutations could be required. One of the additional genetic alterations is uh, activation-induced stitching diaminase apolipoprotein B messenger RNA editing enzyme apobic mutation. Apophic mutation signature was enriched in triple mutant lung cancers, which transformed to smooth lung cancer. Uh, other genetic alterations, such as whole genome doubling, weak family amplification, TOX2 family members, and PS3 clients AKTM torch signaling could also be correlated with smooth lung cancer transformation. Further genetic approach to explore the risk of smooth lung cancer transformation is required. For the patient characteristic, a rapid increase in the serum levels of neuron-specific enlarge and or the releasing peptide pro-GRP levels uh, can be helpful for the early prediction of disease transformation to small cell cancer. 
in your experience, a rapid increase of neural specific enrollment was observed in about half of the transformer cases. However, there are also some cases not accompanied by the increase of these tumor markers. Thank you. And I'm going to ask something related to this a little bit outside of the script. When you see these patients that already have commutations at presentation that are associated with higher risk, do you treat them differently? Um, I think the, um, the for that uh, double mutant for the TB15 and RB1, I think the treatment uh, should be similar with smooth reactants. So these are the patients that have those commutations at presentation. Do you will still do we add chemotherapy at the time of diagnosis when they have the EGFR, the T53, and the RV1? Uh, for that, I don't know carcinoma case, uh, not uh, containing uh, small cell and cancer, uh, I will use uh, plasma, EGFR, TKI. And then uh, after we confront small cell and cancer for our film, that case, we will switch to the based cancer. So that um, only TP53 and RB1, uh, I think uh, we don't use uh, EGFR time. I will not use plasma-based cancer. Okay. So, you know, they're treated with the TKI and then when the transformation will be chemotherapy. You can yeah, use yes, Cistropex, Saucia, if you want to add something. Yeah, I think this is a very interesting and important question, um, you know, that you raise. We know that these patients with these triple mutations, EGFR and P53 and RB1 are at higher risk. And it's a challenging clinical situation to know this, but not know exactly how we should manage these patients differently. I agree with Shigeki that currently the standard of care for these patients is a TKI monotherapy. I do watch these patients closely, and I think this is a, a patient population and you know where I think getting a tissue biopsy at the time of progression is particularly important. I also wanted to highlight that there's a really interesting clinical trial ongoing uh, out of Memorial Sloan Kettering that's looking at this population of patients and, and the potential role of adding flatinamitoposide chemotherapy to osimertinib first line. So these are patients with triple mutations. They start osimertinib and then uh, four cycles of platinumetoposide chemotherapy are added kind of at the point of, of response to osimertinib in the hopes of eradicating a potential um, clone that may eventually lead to small cell transformation before that transformation may arise. So I think this is a really innovative study design and it may impact our treatment options in the future. But today I think right, you know, we don't really have um, good rationale outside of a clinical trial like that to add platinumetoposide chemotherapy earlier for these patients kind of prior to the time of transformation. Thank you both for answering. And along those lines, uh, what is the clinical course of these presentations? Do you see more disease in the liver? Are these patients having new brain metastasis? When this process happens, when it transforms from the adenocarcinoma to the small cell, Sofia? Yeah, in my clinical experience, I think that the course of these patients can actually be quite varied. I think we are all we all expect patients with small cell transformation to have a very aggressive um, disease course, more widespread disease progression, rapid disease progression, often associated with brain metastases, liver metastases, other new sites of disease. And sometimes that is the case. But in my own clinical experience, I think we've also seen cases where patients may have more slower, more indolent disease progression, sometimes cases of oligoprogression in an individual lymph node or something like that where we've been surprised that a biopsy has shown us that a small cell transformation has occurred. 
And I think that, you know, this is really important to keep in mind because again, these small cell transformations can be uh, difficult to detect clinically. And, and I think we have to be aware of this possibility in all of our patients, certainly, you know, in our patients with rapid disease progression, this has to be at the forefront of our mind, particularly in those high-risk patients, but really across the board, you know, sometimes we can be surprised to find a histologic transformation. I think, you know, some of these patients can have uh, CNS or liver metastases, not all of them do. But one thing clinically that's important to keep in mind is that given the prevalence of brain metastases in both non-small cell and small cell uh, cancers, I think it's important to include a brain MRI as part of your workup in a patient who is found to have a small cell transformation. So if you get that biopsy and it shows a small cell transformation and the patient has not had a recent brain MRI, I think it's important to do that to exclude the possibility of CNS involvement. You know, a few years ago, uh, Dr. Mark, who one of our, our colleagues had collected a multi-institutional cohort of 67 patients with EGFR mutant lung cancers who developed small cell transformation. These were patients collected from eight institutions. And, you know, historically, this, this uh, phenomenon has been difficult to study because it's relatively uncommon. And at each individual institution, we may have only a small number of patients with this phenomenon. And so I think these type of multi-institutional efforts are important to help us better understand small cell transformation. In this cohort, patients were included who had been treated with a variety of prior EGFR inhibitors, again, speaking to the fact that small cell transformation can really occur after any EGFR inhibitor. And what we saw was that the median time from diagnosis to the time of small cell transformation was about 18 months. And of course, this can vary widely, but but that was some, that was what we saw in this cohort. I think the final point that I wanted to make from a clinical perspective is the key one that that small cell transformation is something that we cannot detect if we use a liquid biopsy to evaluate resistance to EGFR inhibitors. And so we talk a lot about how to evaluate patients who progress on EGFR inhibitors, and specifically now, most commonly, progress on osimertinib. And I think this topic really highlights the importance of getting a tissue biopsy in all patients if you are able to, especially for those that have rapid disease progression or those small cell risk factors like EGFR, RB1, and P53 commutations. And, and really remembering and keeping in mind that a liquid biopsy will not detect this. So even if on a liquid biopsy, you identify those RB1 and P53 commutations, that liquid biopsy or the circulating tumor DNA currently cannot tell you whether a transformation has occurred. Thank you. And I think this is very important and is the power of tissue testing. I think liquid biopsy has revolutionized how we treat lung cancer, but like Fred, we said, tissue is the issue. And mm -hmm. along those lines, Sigeki, uh, what is the role of genomics for these patients? So you have a patient that had the transformation to small cell lung cancer. What is the role? We know that it's important to revioxy tissue, but how important is to proceed with genomic profiling in these cases? Uh, in my opinion, a rebuffsy is critical when we suspect that the patient has disease transformation to smooth lung cancer. First of all, a pathological diagnosis is essential for the transformation of smooth lung cancer. In addition, rebuffsy is beneficial not only for the pathological diagnosis but also for genetic analysis to identify other off-target resistance mechanisms. Identifying a resistance mechanism by a biopsy is pretty crucial because the therapeutic strategy is different depending on the resistance mechanisms. For the cases of EGFR transformation to small cell lung cancer, platinum-based chemotherapy such as 
plasma plus epoxide is effective. On the other hand, if the resistance mechanism is targetable oncogenic driver alterations, such as wet amplification, we can apply targeted therapies such as uh, wet inhibitors for this case. Therefore, the biopsy is crucial for making a direction of therapeutic strategy. And the uh, novel approach, I think, also detecting T53 and RB1 are the finding the risk. It's very important. So the biopsy is crucially for the diverse. And just to add to that, I think it's also important like, to understand more. As Sofshadio said, you know, we have very limited cases. And I think the role of profiling is not only to affect that patient, but also, you know, for us to get to understand this phenomenon better and do better. So as we move to this uh, case scenario in which we have a patient with EGFR mutant osmocellone cancer that has transformed, to a small cell lung cancer uh, because the disease uh, trajectory changed all of a sudden and then we did a biopsy that confirmed that. So, Sosia, what is your preferred first-line therapy for these patients after the transformation has occurred? So first of all, just to say and, and reiterate, I agree with Shigeki that tissue biopsies are very important in these patients. And really, I think this scenario is the reason why I think tissue biopsies are important for patients, whether they're at an academic institution and you're considering clinical trials after osimertinib or in a community setting where clinical trials might not be available. Because if the patient has a histologic transformation to a small cell carcinoma, I think that we have good data to suggest that treating them with a platinum etoposide chemotherapy regimen, similar to how we would approach a patient with a de novo small cell lung cancer, is the best way to target these small cell transformed clones. Again, you know that we have limited prospective data specifically in patients with EGFR mutant transformed small cell lung cancer. A lot of our treatment paradigms really here are extrapolated from patients with de novo small cell lung cancer. And we have to acknowledge that that extrapolation may be somewhat limited because these patients often are, are have quite different backgrounds and different smoking histories and, and different kind of genomic backgrounds to their cancers than patients with the more common de novo small cell lung cancer. But what we've seen is that similar to de novo small cell lung cancer patients, patients with transformed EGFR mutant small cell lung cancer tend to do fairly well with platinum etoposide chemotherapy. In that retrospective series that I mentioned earlier, we looked at clinical outcomes retrospectively for patients with platinum etoposide chemotherapy and the response rate was 54%. So similar to what we'd expect in a de novo small cell uh, lung cancer, though I think soberingly, the median progression for survival, again, retrospectively in this cohort, was only about 3.4 months. So these patients do tend to respond, although the responses are often not very long-lived. And I'll also highlight that in that, so that retrospective experience, we also looked at responses to other um, types of chemotherapy, and we did see that taxane-based therapy, particularly with paclitaxel or albumin-bound paclitaxel, seemed to be a somewhat effective later-line treatment strategy for these patients with a clinical response rate of about 50%. So for, when we're reaching for later lines of chemotherapy for these patients with transformation, I think taxane-based therapies are something that we consider. Thank you. And I think something that's very hard, I have several patients with this clinical presentation, is that they were taking a pill. And now everything that they initially fear at the time of lung cancer diagnosis is becoming a reality, which is, you know, 
the chemotherapy, the side effects of the chemotherapy, loosen their hair. And I think there is an emotional aspect about these patients that we cannot take for for granted, and it, which is just everything re- derails, right? They have been in therapy for 18 months. We osimertinib, but now, you know, it's more visits to the cancer center, low counts, nulasta, all of these things that they were not used to added to the chemotherapy regimen. Absolutely. And, you know, I will also add that in my clinical experience, many of these patients are actually very, very well informed. And often they belong to patient, uh, you know, online patient groups or have been doing a lot of reading. And I think many of them are aware of this phenomenon of small cell transformation and the fact that this is something that can be challenging to treat and, and has somewhat of a limited prognosis. And so this can be a very frightening time for these patients. And with these transitions in therapy, with kind of the understanding, and I think also the the limited options for clinical trials and, and kind of experimental therapies for these patients, all of those are challenges that, that are, you know, make this experience, I think, really difficult for patients. And it's important to be aware of that. Thank you. And as we know, for patients with EGFR mutant osmosis and lung cancer, le- immunotherapy has very limited benefit. But the question, Sigeki, uh, is, is there a role for immunotherapy in these patients, right? Immunotherapy is part of the standard of care for patients with a small cell after Empower 133, but what is the role of immunotherapy in a patient that was formerly EGFR that now has formerly or still has the EGFR and transported to a small cell? Do you use any immunotherapy in these patients? So that immunotherapy, uh, previous uh, studies have shown the limited efficacy of immunotherapy pointing inhibitors for patients who developed a hydrologic transformation to small cell lung cancer. The patients transported to small cell lung cancer might be less likely to respond to immunotherapy inhibitors such as those having EGFR mutations. Actually, no responses were observed among 70 uh, patients who received point inhibitors in a study from Massachusetts General Hospital published in 2019. In other cohort study from Japan, the objective response date and disease control rate of point inhibitors were 0% and 17% respectively. And the um, median progression with survivor was two months. Two case reports regarding PD1 blockade for small cell lung cancer transformation have suggested that the treatment is EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors attenuated PDL1 expression. We have also reviewed our experiences of immune checkpoint inhibitors for patients with transformed to small cell lung cancer. Unfortunately, no case showed response when immune checkpoint inhibitor was used as a single agent. However, the sample size is limited and immune checkpoint inhibitors were used in the later lines, so we should be careful about this result. Combination treatments with chemotherapy and immune checkpoint inhibitors have recently demonstrated more promise than single agent checkpoint. Therefore, exploring the effect of immune checkpoint inhibitor together with platinum-based chemotherapy could be critical in EGFR mutant transformers for cell cancer. Further research with a larger cohort is required to make a role of immune checkpoint inhibitors for transformers for cell cancer cases, I think. Combining chemotherapy and immunotherapy with other treatments, such as chemotherapy, might give up the directions for the future therapeutic approaches for this disease. Thank you so much for, you know, explaining that. And 
associated question to that is to to do or to not keep the EGFR in, inhibitor. So, Sofia, what are some of the challenges and, and what do you do in your practice? Do you keep the EGFR inhibitor because, you know, we're worried about hyperprogression when the other part of the disease may be, you know, the inhibition that the TKI is providing may be removed. So what is your usual practice to keep or to not to keep the EGFR inhibitor? It's a great question. And one I think that we all, you know, struggle with and, and wish we had more prospective data, which again, you know, once again, I think is, is limited in this current situation. Um, you know, I think your point is well taken that often, even in the case of small cell transformation, there may still be heterogeneity to these cancers at the time of the development of resistance. And we've seen in past series that even patients who have small cell transformation on one biopsy, if you rebiopsy their disease later on during the disease course, you can see reemergence of adenocarcinoma clones. And I think we we presume that in these patients who have small cell transformation, there may still be some non-small cell lung cancer clones that are there, and that may still be responding to osimertinib or may have some benefit from osimertinib. And so I think there certainly is a, an appeal to continuing on the EGFR inhibitor. Now, in my own practice, I think, you know, whether or not to continue it with chemotherapy depends on a few factors. The first is, you know, what is the extent of progression on scans? And I think in patients who have really widespread disease progression, where you feel the majority of the patient's cancer is likely to have transformed, I think there maybe there's a little bit less of a need to continue the NGFR inhibitor than perhaps someone who has one or two sites of disease while other um, areas of disease are remain controlled. In particular, patients who've had brain metastases, which remain controlled, similar to if we were treating with a non-small cell type chemotherapy regimen there, I will often try to continue the EGFR inhibitor um, to try to maximize CNS control. You know, in my clinical experience, I think often we do try to continue the TKI when we start platinum etoposide chemotherapy. And this is generally fairly well tolerated, although I will say that we have seen more myelosuppression and low blood counts with the combination of chemotherapy with osimertinib than we do with platinum etoposide alone, which of course can cause myelosuppression and neutropenia even on its own. And so I would say I'm cautious about using the TKI platinum etoposide combination in older patients or more frail patients. And particularly in those patients, if I'm continuing the TKI, I will monitor the counts closely and sometimes even consider adding prophylactic um, growth factor support uh, for those patients. Um, I think if we do hold the TKI during platinum etoposide chemotherapy, one thing that I will often consider in those patients is when we complete the four cycles of platinum etoposide, and if we're not using immunotherapy, which I agree with Shigeki is really not my standard practice for transformed small cell lung cancer, after the, the platinum etoposide chemotherapy is complete, I will consider adding back the osimertinib as maintenance therapy. So after they've completed that platinum etoposide, going back on the osimertinib, again, in the hopes that there may be some heterogeneity of the cancer, the chemotherapy may have addressed the small cell transformed population of cells, and that the osimertinib may still provide some control for any adenocarcinoma or non-small cell lung cancer clones that may be remaining. Thank you so much. And I think that's a very good point. You know, the, the patients are very different. So every circumstance is very different. We all agree that there is limited to known role for immunotherapy, but the TK, I think it would depend on the patient, how the disease is behaving. And I really like that idea of resuming the TKI after the carbo has been completed and 
you know, one obstacle, and I want to hear from you, is insurance when it comes to trying to keep the EGFR uh, inhibitor. What has been your experience with that? So I think for the most part, we haven't had trouble with insurance approval for these. I think we're we're somewhat lucky in the fact that often the oral therapies go through a different um, insurance approval process than the infusional therapies. Um, but I have run into cases where that can be a challenge. And, and I think the challenge here is that we don't always have um, da- clinical data, you know, publications to help support our claim that this this is a preferred treatment regimen. So it can vary. But overall, I would say that I've had pretty good luck in getting the combination of chemotherapy with osimertinib approved. Thank you. Sigeki, do we have any clinical trials designed particularly for this situation? I know Sosha mentioned some. Um, is there any, any new combinations that are very exciting down the pipeline? Yeah, so I'd like to introduce uh, three um, clinical trials. First is the uh, uh, promising uh, trial uh, for our patient. Um, yeah. So now, I would like to present a study of Japine in combination with Osmaritim, EGFR and mutated Agvastran cancer. Japine is a potent PAP inhibitor which blocks DNA damage from being repaired or may prevent damage from occurring in the first place. PAP inhibitors such as Orapari uh, are developed showed promising efficacy for left small cell lung cancer with the conventional tevodromide. This trial targets patients after a progression of osmeritinib and primary objective is maximal predated dose of diabetes. I think this uh, trial is very promising. And the next, I'd like to mention uh, about the oral kinase inhibitor LY32956A in combination with osmeritinib for the treatment of advanced or metastatic EGFR mutant nosquamous nosquamous cancer. This RB1 loss leads to the dependence of oral kinase A. Oral kinase inhibitors could uh, target RB1 deficient nosquamous cancer cells. So oral A selective kinase inhibitor LY32956A is a highly specific oral kinase A inhibitor, which could be expected to inhibit the proliferation of small cell cancer cells potently. This trial targets the patients after progression of bloodline subgeneration by EGFRTK treatment, and the primary objective is to determine dose-limiting toxicity and recommended phase recommended phase two dose. Finally, I will introduce a study of osmeritinib in combination with paristatib or saponisat for the treatment of osmeritinib resistant EGFR mutant stage 3D for non-sposal cancer. Paristatib uh, is also a selective oral kinase inhibitor and a single agent activity was demonstrated in a phase 2 study of patients with uh, solid tumors including sposal cancer. Saponisatib is a highly selective ATP uh, competitive mTOR kinase inhibitor that suppresses both mTOR1 and mTOR2. PSE kinase AKT mTOR signaling has a crucial function in DDS plasticity and neural endocrine transformation. Therefore, this signaling pathway inhibition might expected to be targetable for smooth cellular cancer transformation. This trial targets patients after progression of osmeritin and primary objective is to determine the safety and the recommended space to be dose. 
I think there's so much anxiety data coming. And, and I think one step to that is because we have an increased awareness, you know, about this clinical presentation and phenomenon. Uh, Sasha, is this associative to the irreversible inhibitors for osimertinib or the fact that patients are remaining on the TKI for a longer period of time? It's a great question. And I agree with you. I think there, in a very positive way, there has been an increased awareness of this phenomenon. I think both on the part of the clinical community and as well in the part of the um, the patient community as well. I think, you know, the real question is, is this phenomenon more common with the more potent uh, EGFR inhibitors such as osimertinib? And I think we really truly don't know right now. You know, the data for resistance mechanisms, for kind of the, the frequency of various resistance mechanisms among patients who have been treated with osimertinib, particularly with osimertinib in the first-line setting as their current standard of care, are actually fairly limited. Many of the larger series of osimertinib resistance that have been published to date, including a large co- the largest cohort really to date, which came from the ORCHARD trial, and some data that we recently published or presented from the uh, prospective ELIOS trial, which was a molecular profiling study looking at osimertinib resistance, Unfortunately, neither of these series actually captured the rates of histologic transformations. And that's something that we're trying to look at um, in these case series, because I think we need data from these larger data sets. Um, But really right now, many studies are relying on liquid biopsies to look at osimertinib resistance. And of course, again, these don't capture small cell uh, transformation. So right now we can say that the prevalence of this transformation seems to be in the range of about 5 to 10%, but I don't think we can say with any confidence that this is more common now than it used to be. I think that's really more is more of an issue of the fact that people are recognizing this more and, and you know, patients are coming asking us about treatment options and clinical trials. And as you mentioned, I think really fortunately we are seeing patients live a longer period of time and therefore they do have more time to develop this transformation over different therapies. Um, I think overall, you know, we as as a community of oncologists and as a patient community are more aware of this. And and again, I think this is coming to, uh, this is on our radar more than it used to be. And I hope this will translate to more prospective studies and clinical trials for these patients. And in the future, a better understanding of the exact prevalence of this specifically in patients treated with first-line osimertinib and, you know, kind of our, our evolving current standards of care. Thank you so much. And we are sadly running out of time. But to the two of you, is there anything you would like to add or share to our listeners about this unique phenomenon? I will start with Sigeki and then I will move to you, Sasha. So I'm really interested in the effect of the new promising agent for small cell and gas, such as AMT757, DLS3 targeting by specific engagement bite or novel antibody drug conjugates DS7300 uh, for the cases of transformation to small cellular cancer. Since there are few therapeutic options after platinum plus edipside uh, for the transformed cases, if these agents are effective, it will especially benefit for the transformed cases. So I think that novel uh, targeted, uh, novel, novel uh, promising drug for small cell uh, gas if uh, it will uh, apply to the transformer case, uh, I'm more interested. Thank you, Sasha. I agree with Shigeki. I think there's a lot of exciting uh, therapeutic targets coming down the pipeline for de novo small cell lung cancer. And even more broadly, I'm excited to see how our 
the advances that we made in our understanding of the biology of de novo small cell lung cancer and these novel therapies that are being developed may be applied for patients with uh, transformed EGFR mutant small cell lung cancer. You know, there's been so much exciting work done to define unique transcription vector subtypes of de novo small cell lung cancer. And I'm really excited to, uh, to learn more about how these types of classification systems can be applied to EGFR mutant transformed small cell lung cancer and how in the future that may help inform treatment decisions for these patients. Thank you. And just a reminder to our listeners, this year's hot topic for the ISLC is small cell lung cancer. This has been a wonderful conversation, but sadly, we have rattled time for this episode. I would like to thank our guests for their time and endless advocacy efforts. Thank you, Dr. Petrowska and Dr. Omemura for your time. Thank you very much for having us. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for providing me a chance to discuss such an exciting talk. I appreciate your kind invitation. Thank you very much. Thank you again to the two of you and thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and I hope you tune in regularly to give us a listen. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 